Good morning, church. Glad to be able to, for us to get together again. Uh, we are on about our, I believe this is our sixth week of being uh, shut down. And, uh, and so here we are once again meeting via a camera. But that's, uh, that's about the best that we can do right now. Hopefully within a couple of weeks we're going to be able to start getting back together. If nothing else in small groups is what I'm... Uh, what I'm really hoping for. I hope everybody's been healthy. I hope you guys are uh, enjoying your, your time being confined in your homes. The weather's been nice. Today's a nice day, so maybe you can get outside and, uh, and enjoy some of that, uh, some of that sunshine. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and pray as my, my custom is. If you would bow your heads with me, I would uh, appreciate that. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we bow in your presence again just asking that you would be with us. <clears throat> Father, I pray that your, your presence would be surrounding us and filling our homes, as, whether we're in our living rooms or wherever it is that we're at while we're watching this. Father, I pray that you would minister to us today. And Lord, as we look through your word today and we look at some examples and we look at a, a subject that I think is very important for us to understand, and that is the vicarious Christian. Lord, I pray that you would just bless us. You cause your Holy Spirit to, to speak to our hearts and minds. And so, Father, I pray that you give us those ears to hear, the eyes to see. But, Father, give us a heart to receive. May we come close to you now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, <clears throat> I was actually on a canoe trip. When you guys get to know me, you'll know that I enjoy wilderness canoeing. And we had just made a large circle, about a 70-mile, 80-mile trip, and we were being picked up by an outfitter. And they sent a man over there to uh, pick me up, and, and so we were, you know, we were, uh, I was talking with him. I got up in the front seat. Everybody else was in his van, all of our gear and everything else. And, and uh, but he was telling me, I was asking him how he went about getting that, <clears throat> and he told me, that he was an IT man in the Silicon Valley. He developed high-level encryption for corporations to keep their computers safe. He began to question the meaning of life. And as he was questioning that, he went out on a journey to understand what life is really all about. And so he left that world... And he began journeying around, and he told me, he said that he had eliminated TV in his home because he realized, now listen to this, whatever he watched, he would actually live that experience in his mind. And he said, the mind cannot distinguish between a real experience and one that is experienced vicariously. That's why the title of the sermon this morning is A Vicarious Christian. But don't forget that now, because we're going to really delve into this this morning. He said, the mind cannot distinguish the difference between a real experience and one experience vicariously. And so I looked up this word in the American Heritage Dictionary, vicarious. And the, the definition was this. It was felt or undergone as if one were taking part in the experience or feelings of another. I'm going to read that again, because I don't want you to miss this. That means that 
a person who has a vicarious experience, they, would, they had it felt or undergone as if one were taking part in the experience or feelings of another. In other words, they would experience through someone else what someone else is experiencing. They would experience that in their own mind. And so I looked up that, um, that definition of vicarious experience. I got another one here. It says, knowledge or information about a skill or, beha- or behavior derived from seeing the performance of others. So by watching someone else, you can actually experience what they are going through. Another definition that I found, this is actually from a psychology website. And of course, now I want you to know the authority I got this off of the internet, and everything on the internet is absolutely gospel truth, right? You know you can depend on it. This one's actually a medical website, so I'm thinking it's pretty accurate. But listen to what it says. It says, vicarious experience is the phenomenon of observing another and feeling what they feel. If we watch someone in pain, to some degree, we feel their experience. As humans, we are social animals and most develop the capacity to empathize with others. We also learn by watching others through the process of observational learning and vicarious reinforcement. I was talking, visiting with a pastor friend of mine, and he told me about a lecture that he had listened to where a psychologist or psychiatrist, some, you know, some person trained in that area, was describing how the mind works. Now, the reason that I want us to understand this is because we are in a war. Now, I know I mention this a lot because I think it's very easy for us to forget that we are in the midst of a war. And this war, the great controversy, is a battle for the mind. You see, there are two powers in the universe. Each one wants to have the throne, if you would, of our mind. And we've got to determine which one of those are because it's either under the force of one of those two forces. The part that it's hard for us, I think, to really grab a hold of and understand is that we are never in control. We are either allowing ourselves to be controlled by the power of God, a divine power, or we are allowing ourselves to be controlled by the, by the power of the, the prince of darkness. That's the choices that we have. Now, what's interesting is that our mind will record everything that we take in and files it away. So anything that comes through our five senses... You see, the mind will record that and it files it like in a filing system on a, on a computer. It files it away in our mind. Now, it doesn't differentiate between reality or a vicarious experience. It just files it away. It's your conscience that will determine if it's truth or error. You know, it's like a, like a computer with a gigantic uh, database. You know, <clears throat> speaking of the brain, speaking of the brain, what I am told is that we only use about 10% of our brain. 10%. Do you realize that we could operate with a brain the size of a plum? But we have all this gray matter in there. You know, to me, that is one of the greatest arguments against evolution that there is. Because evolution teaches that if you don't use it, you lose it. If there's no need for it, it will go away. Then why has the gray matter 
the gray matter in her head, why has it stayed the way it is? See, I believe because we were created to really live forever, and we've got a brain that can actually absorb the information that God wants us to be able over that long of a period of time. So, Your, your conscience is a determining factor that will determine whether it's truth or error. So, every time that you see something, every time you experience anything, okay, you will, your, your, your mind will go through the database and it will ask the question, have I seen this before? If I did, how did I respond to this event in the past? What happened and how did I respond to it? And it keeps that record. And the illustration that this doctor used, he told the story of his, do- of his daughter. His little girl, they grew up in a family, they loved sailing, and the little girl loved to be out on the water, she loved to be on the boat, she really, really enjoyed sailing. And they got her the movie, or they brought her to the movie, The Black Stallion. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard that movie, The Black Stallion, or if you've ever watched that. But in that movie, what happens is there's a ship that's sailing someplace. I think it's off the coast of Africa, and a storm or a fire breaks out. I think it was a fire that broke out in a storm. But anyways, the long and the short of the story is that the ship ship sunk. It was a very traumatic experience, and the only survivors was a little boy and a black stallion. The little boy's father was killed in the fire on that ship. Well, they, she watched the movie, and they got her the soundtrack, and she would listen to the soundtrack over and over and over. Well, time came to go sailing. They, 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 they went out to do that. The family went out sailing one time. They got over to where the boat was, and this little girl refused to get on the boat. Now, it didn't make any sense because... It wasn't that long before she absolutely loved to be on the boat. She loved to be on the water. And now she was terrified she would not get on the boat. And so he began searching and trying to understand what is it that caused her this this irrational behavior. This doesn't make any sense. And he traced it all the way back to that movie. You see, she ended up with a fear of the boat and water because there was a subconscious process of her mind searching its database. You see, she had experienced that experience in her mind vicariously, but it had affected her to a point where it actually took place in her life, where she was was really afraid. And so, whenever we come to a situation, whatever it is, whatever it is that you see, whenever you come to a situation, your mind will ask the following questions. Have I seen this before? Have I ever seen this before? What happened when I saw this? And what was my response the last time that I saw this? Give you an example of that. A man is walking past a dark alley, and he's walking down the street. It's night, and he looks, there's a dark alley. And when he looks there, the very first thing that goes through his mind is he will ask the question, have I seen this before? And he'll say, yes, I've seen that before. What happened the last time I saw this? Well, I walked into the alley and I was mugged. I was beaten and robbed. And so what was the response the last time? Well, that's what he went through. And so he avoids the alley now and he goes past it. 
I had an experience like that in my, in my own life. <clears throat> my brother, my older brother, was six years older than me, and he enjoyed watching horror movies. Now, I'm not telling anybody that that's what you should do, but we didn't, grow up in a, we didn't grow up in a church, and nobody saw anything wrong with that in the family I was growing up in. And so he would love to watch these horror movies, and for some reason they always play these really late at night. And so he did not like to watch them alone, so guess what he would do? He would get his little brother over there to go and sit and watch these stupid movies where you've got vampires or werewolves or whatever the, whatever the thing was. And with all the eerie music and everything else that was going on, he thought they were really funny. That would scare the living daylights out of me. Now, we were on the third floor of our house. We lived in a split-level house, and if you know anything about physics, hot air always rises, and during the summer, that upstairs bedroom would get very, very hot. We didn't have any air conditioning. In fact, I don't even know if I ever heard of air conditioning at that point, but there was, it would be really hot up there. Well, we'd go and we'd watch those movies, and I would go upstairs and go to bed. And it didn't matter if it was 150 degrees in that room, I would be in that bed and I would have all the covers pulled right up, right up to my chin because I was afraid of nothing. I knew that was a bunch of nonsense. People don't turn into werewolves when the, when the moon turns full. There is no such thing as vampires. I mean, you know, I knew this, but it still, it would terrify me because the mind has a hard time differentiating between that. Now, it had a longer-term effect than that. We always had dogs. In fact, we had a, a kennel out in the backyard, and we usually had one bird dog and usually like three beagles or four beagles, and it was my job to go out there and feed them. And in the summertime, it wasn't bad because it was light for a long time, but in the wintertime, when the sun went down real early, and I'd have to go out in the dark by myself, I would be terrified to go out because I was afraid of the dark. Why? Because I saw these movies, and it always happened in the dark. And I had that fear that was just, it was embedded into my mind. Now, to contrast that, we had three children, and we lived on a farm for, for a period of time, and my kids never watched anything like that when they were growing up. They didn't get to see anything like that. And so when I would send them out for any kind of chores after dark, it didn't bother any of them. They never even thought about being afraid in the dark because, you see, their mind had not gone through what my mind had. And so that brings me to a Bible principle, and that is by beholding, by beholding, we become changed. And I think that's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 18, which is our verse here for this morning. And it is this. He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so that's that beholding we become changed. Now, <clears throat> I just want to illustrate something to you here. Uh, I, I wish you were here in the pew so I could talk to you here because I'd like to see the look on your face when I ask this question. But those of you especially that are my age, actually, let's see, you would be probably, if you're around 50 years old or, or older, you will, you, this will probably come right to your mind. But I'm going to say a phrase, and I am willing to say that the rest, I'm only going to say half of it, the rest of it, it will come out of your mouth almost automatically, and it's this. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. 
Now, for those of you that remember that, <clears throat> you have any idea how long that's been since you've heard that? The last time that would have been broadcast would have been around 1970. Maybe the very early 70s. You're talking 50 years ago. Maybe I'm dating myself. Maybe it was the mid-70s. I have done this with crowds of people, and I've asked them that question. Usually when I'm doing a seminar, I'll ask them that question. And it's amazing how many people, how many people. Now, it's written in magazines. It was written after. I don't know if this still is or not, because I don't pay attention to that. But that, that phrase, that phrase is embedded in people's minds. Why? You only need to hear it one time. Your mind records everything. And so Paul says here, he says that by beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And so Paul says by focusing on Jesus, by focusing on those right things, you see, we will become more and more like Jesus today. Uh, in, in Gospel Workers, page 92. Gospel Workers, page, I'm sorry, yeah, Gospel Workers, page um, uh, 92. No, I'm sorry, there's Gospel Workers 92 edition, page 422. He says, brethren, this is Ellen White writing here. She says, brethren, do not express doubt. Do not let your lips utter one complaining, repining word. Begin now to fix your minds more firmly upon Jesus and heavenly things, remembering that by beholding, we become changed into the same image. And a question I think we should be asking ourselves is, what am I beholding today? What is it that I'm watching? What is it that I'm reading? What is it that I'm listening to? What is it that I'm allowing my senses to put into this filing system of my mind? What are we beholding today? In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 459, I found another another statement that I think really explains this. Listen to this carefully. Listen to this very carefully. She says, A long preparatory process unknown to the world goes on in the heart before the Christian commits open sin. You catch that? She said, A long preparatory process unknown to the world goes on in the heart before the Christian commits open sin. The mind does not come down at once from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption, and crime. It takes time to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or the satanic. By beholding, we become changed. By indulgence of impure thoughts, man can so educate his mind that sin which he once loathed will become pleasant to him. You know, the example of that, the clearest example, I would say, is just look at our society. We are, we are experiencing things in our society today that if anybody would have looked 50 years ago and says, hey, you know, 50 years from now, this is what people are going to be doing. They would never have believed it. They would never have believed it. They would never have believed that churches would openly accept, hope, openly, I should, churches would willingly accept openly practicing homosexuals to the ministry, ordained to the ministry. They would have never dreamt that. Same-sex marriage in America, they would have never, never dreamt that. But by beholding, we become changed. They would have never believed the amount of violence that we see in our streets today. They would never have dreamt that, that, the, that the teen birth rate is so high. Unwed mother birth rate would be so high. All these things are happening, but how? How does this happen? 
Well, you know, while we're watching, what we're watching, what we're feeding our mind with becomes normal. It becomes normal. You see, our mind doesn't differentiate between, between, between truth and false. It just records images. It's what, is what it does. When I was a uh, <clears throat> young Christian, I was only uh, maybe, I, I might have been a Christian for two or three years, and <clears throat> there was an elder in a church. And you know, sometimes churches make mistakes in who they choose for, for their leaders. I mean, they do. We're human. We make mistakes. And in this case, it was a serious mistake. Because here was a, a young man that really had not really been a Christian for very long. He was, he was fairly young. And they made him an elder. And when they made him an elder, it was really, it was, he was not ready for that responsibility. But anyways, I looked up to him. I was a, I was a young man as well. And I looked up to him. You know, he had a position that, that I respected. And so I would go over to his house on Saturday nights and we would study the Bible together. I was over there one night and we got into a long study and the, you know, the clock was ticking away but there was really no rush to do anything. But I noticed he started getting a little antsy. And he started getting, you know, a little bit agitated. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally, and I wasn't paying attention to what time it was, but finally the clock hit a certain point. He ran over and he turned on the television. And I looked, I said, what are you doing? He says, listen, he says, it's Saturday night. I never miss Saturday Night Live. I said, really? I said, you actually watch that? See, I didn't even have a TV. <laughs> we didn't, my wife and I didn't even own a television. And it was, I, I could imagine why somebody would want to watch it. And he says, listen, he says, I'm a strong Christian. I can handle it. He said, a lot of people can't handle this kind of stuff, but he says, not me. He said, I'm a strong Christian. He says, I can handle it. He says, it doesn't affect me one way or the other. Well, he was wrong. He was wrong. Um, not only did it affect him, uh, he ended up having an affair with, uh, obviously, a woman that wasn't his wife. He ended up leaving the church. Uh, he moved away, and I don't know where he went, went to another state. But I was attending a funeral several years later, and this man came in. I did not recognize. <clears throat> he, uh, his hair was all, remember the punk kind of thing with spikes going all over and different colors and, and all that kind of stuff. And he had things hanging all over his ears and his nose and, and everything else. And he was all, all covered with tattoos. And he had a shirt on. Of course, when you got tattoos, you want to be, have people be able to see it. And so he had a shirt all on. This guy's going to a funeral. He's going to a funeral. He's not going out to the playground. He's going to a funeral. He's got a shirt unbuttoned all the way down to his belt, big hairy chest hanging out. And if somebody would not have told me who he was... I really don't think I would have recognized him. But he was a strong Christian. You see, he could handle it. Let me tell you something, friends. Let me tell you something. I want you to hear me really clear on this. We're none of us are strong enough to handle it. You know, <clears throat> I've been a Christian now for 40 years. In fact, 40 years next weekend when I was baptized. One thing I've learned in my walk with Jesus is that every time I think that I am strong, I fall flat on my face. You see, if we're going to depend on our strength, we will lose that battle every single time. We are no match for the devil. But if we have Christ, the hope of glory in us, that's a whole different story. 
because that is his battle. That's not our battle. Our battle stay connected to Jesus, okay? But let's get back to our beholding. Listen to this. This is from um, um, Fundamentals of Education, page 422. <clears throat> it says, beholding evil corrupted antediluvians. Now listen to what she says. By beholding evil, men became changed into its image until God could bear with their wickedness no longer and they were swept away by the flood. You see, by behold, it's, 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 that is a natural law. By beholding, we'll become change. Uh, you know, the effect of, of media or what we call entertainment on our minds is very, very, very profound. Uh, I remember when I was, uh, I was really young. Matter of fact, I might have been in high school and the movie Bonnie and Clyde came out and I remember all the copycat uh, crimes that were committed. High-speed chases. People get into, kids get in a car, they go to the movie, they get in a car, and when they, were, when they were arrested, and they were, you know, the police were asking, why in the world would you do this? They said, well, you know, we just watched that movie, and it just seemed like so much fun. Just seemed like so much fun. You know, one of the reasons why many movies are watched over and over and over is the experience that the, the viewers are experiencing what's on the screen vicariously. You see, they end up, they, in their mind, they become role players in that movie. That's one of the reasons why pornography is so addictive. See, people watch the, what's going on on the screen and, and as unnatural as it can be, but in their mind, you see, they're in there and they're actually experiencing that. And that's why it's such a big business. There are, there are billions of dollars spent every year on pornography in this country and right here in America. And so they, they live it out. See, they're experiencing it vicariously. They live it out in their minds. I had a, <clears throat> when I first started a business, I had a young man working for me. And he, uh, he was, we got to be pretty close. We were just the two of us working there at that time. And uh, I would just, it was a brand new business. And, you know, it just, you, you, you use what you can. You know, it'd be great to be able to have a big crew out there, but you just don't have enough volume to be able to do that. And so anyways, he was working for me. And, and we, got, we got some pretty, pretty deep conversations. And he began telling me how he was addicted to pornography. And he went on and, and, and he was telling me, he says, you know, he says, man, he says, I've, I've tried to quit. And he says, I've tried to do this. And he says, it just, he says, man, he says, I don't know. He says, I, I, I cannot drive past an adult theater. He says, I'm driving down the road and I see him. And he says, man, he says, I just, he says, it's like I have no control. I just pull over into it. And while he was having marital problems and he couldn't understand why his wife didn't, didn't, didn't think that was okay. And I looked at him, I says, Really? You, you've really got a problem with that. You don't understand? You're committing adultery in your mind every time you're watching that and you think your wife is going to be okay with that? And so I don't know what, whatever happened. He moved away. And uh, I never, uh, I, I didn't see him after that. But I often wondered what, whatever happened, you know, to their marriage. But that's why the entertainment industry is so addictive in our society. You know, you can talk to many of our young people they can tell you all the movies that are coming out. They can tell you who's in it, who the stars are, what movies they've been in. They can tell you the plot lines. They can tell you all these different things about the movies. But they can't tell you a Bible story. They don't even know the books of the Bible. 
Do you follow what I'm saying? You know, what is it that we're feasting? Our kids are, are, are feasting on. You know that old, that old saying, garbage in, garbage out. It's actually a syndrome. If we, we're going to get out exactly what it is we're putting in. You know, one, sometimes I think we wonder why, why there are, we have so little of a spiritual appetite. But what are we feeding our minds with? What is our main source of mental food? You see, by beholding, we become changed. If we're beholding Jesus and his righteousness and his plan for our lives, you see, that is what becomes a reality for us. But if we're focusing on fiction, if we're focusing on evil, it doesn't matter if it's false. If we're focusing on that, we will end up turning that way because that's what becomes us. And that's why I call the sermon The Vicarious Christian. You see, we know that if we focus on bad things, we will become more like them. The Bible is very clear about that. But what about beholding good things? What about good, good things? See, Isaiah tells us what it is that we're supposed to behold. So does Paul in the book of Hebrews. But Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22, it says, Look to me and be saved. Now Isaiah is quoting what God is telling him. We're to be looking to God, not at any other substitute. We're not especially not supposed to look at each other. I don't care how elevated a position someone has in a church. We aren't to look at each other. We're to look to Jesus. That's the only, the only pattern, the only example we have is him. He says, look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God, he says, and there is no other. Paul, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Paul tells us we are to look to Jesus. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And just, just 13 verses later, in verse 15, he says, looking carefully. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, it says diligently. That is not a casual approach. That means you, we have to put effort into that. That's where our effort needs to be. Our effort needs to be looking at Jesus. We need to be focusing really on him. Listen, folks, the reason I'm really hammering on this, and I know, I really believe that we are going to go through a crisis like none of us who are breathing today have ever gone through. In fact, I was just talking to, to uh, someone about that not too long ago. <clears throat> when this starts falling apart, we have to have that confidence, that trust. We have to be focused on Jesus to get through. Actually, whether we go through that or not, that's how we really need to go through life successfully as a Christian is by staying focused on Jesus. But he says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this, many become defiled. He says, when we take our eyes off, when we, when we stop doing that, that is when we get defiled. Well, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Do you think looking for me for me do you think looking at a picture of my wife or maybe somebody let's let's go back let's go back to when when we were really young before we ever before i ever really got to know her and somebody came up to me and says tom boy I, I i know this lady that you would really like her name is melody and boy i tell you i think i think you guys would be a real fit you know she's about this high and she weighs i'm not going to go there but anyways you know and he starts describing her all to me and and he's telling me all about her does that really, would that be a, a really a valid substitute for me really knowing her? 
You know, I could look at all the pictures. I could look at all the write-ups. I could have him tell me everything that he thinks he knows about this person. But does he really know her like I would want to know her if I want her to be my life mate? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You see, you can only get to know someone if you're spending quality time with them and focusing on them. Let's say, you know, I've always wanted to be able to fly. I really do. And, I, you know, I'm going to fly one day. It's on my bucket list. I'm going to fly one day. Uh, I don't know if it'll be on this earth. I may have to have my own wings to do it. But one day, I am going to fly. I really, I really would like to fly. But let's say I watched a, a video program on flying an airplane. And it described everything. It described everything. It described how you've got to pull back on this. You've got to turn this. You've got to flip that switch. You've got to do this. And you've got to do all these different things. And that plane will take off. And you can fly around. And then they show you how to land it. Okay? Well, let's say I'm heading out to the plane. How many of you would want to get in the plane with me and go on a flight? Probably not too many. Yeah, not too many. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. You know, when I, uh, when I get in a plane about the, actually, honestly, the only thing I know about a plane is getting in the seat and, and putting the seatbelt on. But what I do is when I get in there is I really hope that whoever it is that is at the controls, that they know what they're doing so that they can get us off the ground and back and back on the ground safely. You see, I see a danger in our culture today, not only by our viewing bad things, but also spending too much time watching good things. Let me read something to you. <clears throat> I had a friend actually sent this to me. It's called, it says, our vicarious experiences, what's next? And it starts all like this. It says, maybe you've heard of Thorstein Veblen. Veblen. Thorstein Vedlin, and I, as I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and, uh, and I asked him, I said, have you ever heard of this guy? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, he's a famous economist. I said, you've got to be joking. You knew about the, well, he was a former CPA before he became a pastor, so yeah, that was all in his training. He says, he was the Norwegian-American economist and sociologist who coined the term conspicuous consumption. As it turns out, Veblen coined another term that didn't quite worm its way as deeply into our popular culture, and that would be vicarious consumption. He essentially said this, The consumer choices exhibited by one person sometimes work to the credit of another. He says, When you see a butler in a tuxedo, the benefit accrues not to the butler, but to his master. The butler is consuming vicariously for his boss. Now listen to where this guy takes it. He says, a hundred years later, it now appears that Veb, Veb, Veblen, I don't know why I have a hard time getting that B in there, Veblen might have been onto something. It's being suggested that we might be on the cusp of a new social networking trend that's being called the vicarious experience in which consumers will have the ability to live vicariously through the lives of complete strangers. I have a neighbor whose 20-something son has been trekking about Southeast Asia for several months now. He has traveled the Ho Chi Minh Trail, hiked into the mountains of Cambodia, lived with fishermen in Sri Lanka. What if he were to film his experiences, put the footage up several times a week onto a private video blog, maybe post some daily journal ent entries? Now imagine thousands of people doing that, feeding their life experiences into a kind of experiential Craigslist. And that got me thinking. That's why this sermon came about. <clears throat> could we, could we today have come to the point 
that we no longer search out the things of God for ourselves. You know, we watch 3ABN, the Hope Channel, Amazing Facts, whatever. We listen to the testimonies and the experiences of others in our minds. And when we do that, are we vicariously experiencing them? Could it be that we are substituting someone else's studying of the Word for our own study? Could someone telling me all about my wife be a substitute for me experiencing a relationship with her? Could it be that we are buying our time witnessing by giving offerings through media outlets? Now we're substituting what we, God has called us to do as individuals Are we substituting vicariously having someone else do it? Have we come to the point we're willing to hire a professional, whether it's a pastor, evangelist, or media ministry, to do the work that we are called to do? Could it be, could it be, that we are not testifying about what Jesus is doing in our lives because we are vicariously living someone else's life. Could it be that we have lost that first-hand knowledge and experience and have little or nothing to share? You know, I've wondered about this because I know I've experienced this in my own life. I could tell others about what Jesus is doing in someone else's life, but I couldn't tell about what he was doing in my own life, and I don't believe that I am the only one that has experienced this. Now, I'm not saying that watching 3ABN or the Hope Channel is a wrong or it's a sin, but if we are substituting our personal experience, our personal time studying, or our personal time in prayer with watching even good programming on TV, could it be that the experience we have is really not ours, but someone else's. Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. It says, and they, the they is the saints. The they is the remnant. It's those who are alive when Jesus comes. It says, and they overcame him. The him, as defined in Revelation, I believe it's verse 9 of chapter 12, is the dragon. It's the devil. It's Satan. The saints overcame the dragon. They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And so I looked up that word testimony. I like definitions, you can probably tell. I looked up that word testimony. And this is what it says in the American Heritage Dictionary. It says, evidence in support of a fact or an assertion. Proof. Testimony. Evidence in support of a fact or an assertion. It's proof. And so I looked up the word, and it said, see, testify. And so I looked up the word testify. 
And it says, to make a statement based on personal knowledge in support of an asserted fact, it's to bear witness. So I want to read Revelation chapter 12 in verse 11 once again. It says, and they overcame him. The saints overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the evidence in support of their personal knowledge, it's proof of who they are. The proof, you see, was seen in their life. Their lives were a testimony to who they had given their lives to and who was absolutely supreme in their heart, that there was no other crowding him out, that they were solely given out, completely given out to Jesus. And so a testimony is telling someone of your personal experience. It's what you're doing with Jesus, what Jesus is doing in your life. No matter how much someone else knows about Christ, no matter how close a relation someone has with Jesus, their experience can never be a substitute for your own personal experience. See, it's impossible. It's impossible. There is no substitute for a personal living interaction with Christ. Neither is there a substitute for sharing our own vibrant experience, sharing with others what Jesus is doing in our lives. That is a testimony. A testimony is this is what Jesus has done in my life. This is what he's doing in my life now. You can testify to the evidence. The evidence is in your life. You can testify to the proof, Jesus. That's what a testimony is all about. You know, brothers and sisters, my prayer is that every one of us will have that living, vibrant relationship with Jesus. I pray that we would determine that we all will be vitally connected to him, that he can use us in any way that he so desires, and that the work can be finished and we can go home. You know, I don't know about you, but I've experienced enough death, enough sadness, enough sickness, enough sorrow. If I never saw another glimpse of evil, that would be just fine with me. I want to be with Jesus. How about you? You're never going to get there on somebody else's shirt tails, friends. It's only by being personally personally connected with him. Spend time with Jesus. Get to know him. Get to know him. Put your hand in his. Let him take you on a journey of eternity. And don't let anything detract you from that. You know, even good things, even good things can interfere with you coming into a good relationship with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, we've talked about some things that may be disturbing today to some. But your desire is that you want to be in us. You want to be in us. You want to be the very center of our lives. And Father, whatever it is, whatever it is that we're looking at, anything that would take us away from you, anything that would get us to take our eyes off of you and look to something else, Lord, I just pray that you would convict us on that. Give us your strength. We can't do it. 
It's only by your grace that we can do this. But as Paul said, your grace is sufficient. And so, Father, I pray that we would all come into such a walk with you that when we come into the presence of other people, they can see. They, the evidence will be there. It'll be written on our countenance. They can look at us and they can say, just like they said of the disciples, these men or these women have been with Jesus. Father, please bless us to that end. Do what's ever necessary in our lives. Clean our hearts. May we be completely given to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.